You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Johnson and Johnson did not cause the opioid abuse crisis here in Oklahoma or anywhere in this country. So there you have it. If you've not heard the news in the last 72 hours, uh, we've had major breaking headlines regarding the opioid crisis and some major lawsuits, some settlements, some offers for settlements. Uh, and clearly this is the health care topic of the week. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. This is Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host for this week. As you know, I alternate weeks with the inimitable Dr. Hal Schertz here in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Thanks very much for, again, spending some time with us. And if you're new, welcome. Uh, this will be the only radio program or podcast that you will hear healthcare policy discussed by full-time practicing physicians. We live this every day in our offices and our operating rooms, taking care of patients. Uh, we study this stuff after hours, and we bring you both book knowledge and experience for uh, a, a lesson in healthcare policy that you can't get anywhere else. So thanks again for spending some time with us. So uh, let's go ahead and get into uh, to the meat of this. We'll, we'll, let's, let's summarize first uh, everything that has gone on here in the last few days, and some of it's um, a little bit older. But, but I want you to think about something as we go through this because it is easy to assume that as we watch all these allegedly evil pharmaceutical companies, and I have no love for them, believe me, but uh, my, my point is it, it is easy to sort of look at everything that's happening as, and assume that justice is being served to everyone who should be held responsible. And I'm going to spend the next few minutes establishing the case that that's not necessarily true. But let's go through what's happened so far, right? Everyone heard about Johnson & Johnson. This was uh, less than 72 hours ago. Uh, they settled uh, with the state of Oklahoma. Uh, it was a $572 million settlement, and you might think that's a huge amount of money, and it is, of course, but it's nothing compared to the $17 billion that the state of Oklahoma was asking for. Now, how did they come up with that number? I mean, where do you pull the number $17 billion out of the sky or from from somewhere else for that matter. But they did have some sort of an expense set up that this was supposed to fund a 30-year plan in the state of Oklahoma to combat and reduce opioid addiction. So that's they came up with some sort of methodology that they were creating this program. And the judge said, well, okay, we will fund you for one year instead of 30. And so that's how they got, you know, 17 billion divided by 30 is 572 million. So I guess that's how the arithmetic worked out. Of course, of course, uh, Johnson & Johnson is going to appeal that, as you would imagine, but clearly the handwriting is on the wall for the opioid manufacturers. And if you don't believe that, then consider the next major headline, which has to do with Purdue Pharmaceuticals, the maker of OxyContin, which is kind of the, uh, the number one example of, of you know, use of a drug gone bad and, and the most common, I think, of the ones that have caused um, addiction. Uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals has some 2,000 lawsuits filed against it and has offered to settle uh, all of those lawsuits for a whopping $12 billion. Uh, and it even gets better than that. This will uh, put the company into bankruptcy. 
so that they can restructure as something else besides a private for-profit company. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors there that I don't fully understand. But there is some interesting things here. One is the Sackler family, who owns Purdue Pharmaceuticals, will give up $3 billion of their own personal assets and uh, give up ownership of the company. So that all sounds altruistic enough or at least, you know, uh, repentant enough, perhaps. Uh, although the way they're going to raise the $3 billion, the Sackler family, is to sell a company that doesn't sound like much. It's called Mundi Pharma. Uh, and that's a pharmaceutical company that operates in India. And you think, well, okay, that's they're, they're selling off a subsidiary, not so bad. But if you if you link the, the the chain links together and realize, well, who is Mundi Pharma? They're this Indian pharmaceutical company, and they are positioning themselves to watch the country of India repeat what has just happened in the United States over the past twenty years, which is, you know, India has just apparently loosened its narcotics laws, has some changes in cultural. Norms regarding what you do with pain, you know, you know. Apparently, the old custom. Again, I only know what I read about this, so if I'm wrong, it's just because a couple of articles isn't enough. Uh, but th- there's a changing cultural perception regarding pain. Now you know how to tolerate pain. Apparently, that was old school. Now you treat pain until you don't feel any anymore. Um, and so there's been a massive growth in India in the pain management industry, and they're getting all the things that we've had recognized and are trying to get rid of, the pill mills, the high-volume Internet business in narcotics, all that kind of stuff. And so doesn't this all sound like history repeating itself and also like the history of big tobacco repeating itself where you have a highly addictive drug, the industry denies the health hazard, finally they're brought to heal over many, many years and then have a you know pseudo-repentant sort of a, of a court settlement. So you watch these things happening over and over again. So – you know, hard to tell, you know, where, you know, produce intense lie or maybe it's not so hard to tell. And there are other companies. There's a, one called Endo International that's already settled for $10 million. Uh, Teva Pharmaceuticals has settled for $85 million. Allergan has settled for $5 million. And apparently the predicted total for all of these settlements when it's all said and done is supposed to be $37 billion dollars which still seems like a paltry sum compared to the 400,000 lives that have been lost since 1999 to opioid addiction. So that's kind of the the nutshell of everything that has happened this past week and how it sort of links to to, to other things. But to fully understand what this is all about, and this gets to what I was talking about in the beginning of the segment, which is that, yes, we can all cheer as the evil pharmaceuticals are brought to heel, and that's all well and good, but I am going to suggest to you over the rest of the segment that there are other villains involved here that have covered their tracks well, and uh, and it, so far I see no evidence that they're going to be brought to heel. So. As usual, and if you've listened to me long enough, you know that I like to torture you with history lessons, so here comes another one. Get your coffee and, and settle in and, and, and listen to all this. you got to go back um, to the mid-1990s. There is a group called the American Pain Society. 
who felt like uh, that the, the, the cause of pain, they championed the cause of pain. And they decided in the mid-1990s that pain was being under-recognized and under-treated. Maybe there's some truth to that. Uh, you know, I don't know. That's the mid-1990s is when, when I came out of training. I knew how I was trained regarding pain. We didn't ignore it as the pain society alleges that, that the practice of medicine was. But they came out with this new concept that pain was going to be the so-called fifth vital sign, right? What are the vital signs, right? You got pulse respiratory rate, blood pressure, and I don't know what the fourth one was, uh, oxygen saturation, something like that. Uh, okay, goofhead. Uh, vital signs, pulse, respiration, blood rate, or, uh, heart rate, and temperature. Okay, blood pressure and temperature. So the fourth one was supposed to be pain, or fifth one was supposed to be pain. And so they, they invented, and I remember this, I remember this being in the hospitals, that all of a sudden, seemingly overnight, that, that hospitals sprang up with this pain scale, right? The range of faces, right? From the happy face where your pain level is zero to the grimacing and agony face with a pain level of 10. And that seemed to come up overnight. Now, how does that happen? Uh, well, it happens through misguided regulatory bodies. And in the case of hospitals, the misguided regulatory body is something called the Joint Commission for Accreditation of Hospitals. Now, in, I don't want to drag out a long history of the Joint Commission, but the bottom line is they have no intrinsic talent or authority to regulate hospitals. The reason that hospitals kowtow to them is that they did manage to politically wrestle support from Medicare and Medicaid, and so you can't use you can't participate in Medicare and Medicaid, which of course every hospital must to survive, unless you submit yourself to the whims of the Joint Commission. So in 2000, the Joint Commission came out and said, okay, we are creating the pain scale with the happy faces and of course to pass your your Joint Commission, you know, every so many year inspection you had to have all these things in. And all of a sudden, you now have the hospitals kowtowing to this. What does this look like? Well, it looks like what happened in health IT when meaningful use came along, right? The idea is you if you can't convince the medical profession of your argument based on its intellectual merits, your plan B is to go engage the government, play politics, and then have the government make your target audience behave the way you think they should. This is what happened in health IT with meaningful use. This is what happens with the Joint Commission and with pain control in the early 2000s. And then as this whole pain thing came along, you now saw this you know, unhappy or I should say unholy matrimony between, again, a regulatory body and providers of a good or service, just like the government and the health IT manufacturers joined to do this joint marketing campaign uh, to convince the medical community not only with regulations that force them to behave, but also with marketing that says, hey, you know what? Narcotics are not that bad. In fact, that's about the time that the, t- the name got changed from narcotics to opioids, right? Narcotics sounds evil, right? And we say the word narcotic, we think of a junkie with a needle in his arm in an alley. Opioid, I mean, the word sounds like teddy bear. You know, it's not, it sounds like just a happy little thing that just makes your pain go away. So these people knew what they were doing. They knew how to manipulate language. They knew how to market. And, and then here's another lesson that happened here is that the New England Journal of Medicine published a, a an article in 1980 that they went back and referenced. And it was referenced as if it was a peer review article. And it was referenced saying, here's this article in the New England Journal of Medicine that says that the potential for addiction using narcotics for post-operative pain is very, very small. 
And if you read this citation in some other article, you think, well, oh my goodness, here's this article in the New England Journal of Medicine that says that narcotics are okay, opioids are okay. Well, guess what the article was? The article was a five-sentence letter. It occupied one-fourth of one page in the opinion section where you know a couple of sloppy numbers were quoted, and that dinky little half-assed, pardon my language, letter was cited 608 times in other articles to convince the medical community that narcotics were safe and that the potential for addiction was minimal. And then when OxyContin was introduced, uh, they, they, you know, pulled the wool over the FDA's eyes and, and their, their, their drug insert said that the potential for addiction was very rare because of, by virtue of, of OxyContin's delayed release. And this went on for at least 10 years. Until finally in 2016, the Joint Commission finally gave in to pressure, abandoned the fifth vital sign concept and published this cover your butt article uh, or, or a publication talking about how they've reacted appropriately as people got smarter and smarter. Uh, and so understand a couple of things. Number one is not all the evil players will be punished here. I don't see Joint Commission ever being held accountable. Um, but it also points out that if you have a weak argument and you can't convince your community, get the government to force your audience to behave. Second, in the case of the New England Journal of Medicine, as we've seen so often, our medical leadership has failed us. Uh, they fail us at the level of the professional societies. They fail us at the level of the journals. And here's probably the best example, but there's lots of other ones. And finally, just as a matter of medical practice, you cannot reduce the practice of medicine to protocols. You can't tell the patient to assign a number to their pain, and if it's above a certain number, you give a certain medicine because that's where things completely fall apart. Uh, I'm a little over time. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. You really can't appreciate what someone has gone through until you walk a mile in their shoes. That is why we are bringing the second annual Walk a Mile in Her Shoes to Atlanta. We are literally asking men to walk a mile in high heel shoes to express empathy for women who have been victim of sexual assault. Are you man enough? If so, join us Saturday, October 5th at Historic Fourth Ward Park. For more information, go to Atlanta Walk a Mile in Her Shoes.EverydayHero.do. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Can you guarantee those union members that the benefits under Medicare for All will be as good as the benefits 
that their representatives, their union reps, fought hard to negotiate. Well, two things. They will be better because Medicare for All is comprehensive. It covers all health care needs for senior citizens. It will finally include dental care, hearing aids, and eyeglasses. But you don't know Second that. of all. You don't know that, Second Bernie. of all. We'll I, just, second I do know, and I wrote the damn bill. And so you have probably the only semi-interesting moment uh, in the Bernie Sanders campaign, this uh, drop the microphone moment about I wrote the damn bill. Um, Still relevant two weeks later, uh, and we'll get to why Bernie has upped the ante uh, in some sort of a campaign reboot, and uh, and we'll get to that. But uh, before I fully develop the uh, Bernie Sanders angle, I want to come at uh, today's topic from uh, from a little uh, different direction. Uh, you know, I like to start the show often by sort of taking a uh, a big headline in the news and trying to tie it uh, uh, somehow into healthcare. And this week, it's actually pretty easy. If if we talk about the uh, the in jail in prison suicide of accused pedophile and overall scumbag Jeffrey Epstein. Right, and you all have seen these headlines. You're familiar with it. Uh, that despite being in a high security facility, but despite being on suicide watch, at least at some point, uh, despite all sorts of claims that it's impossible to kill yourself in prison because you can't access the materials, uh, somehow uh, Jeffrey Epstein uh, succeeded in killing himself in the middle of a high security prison. And isn't this ironic? I mean, if, if you're the warden of this high security prison, if there's one guy one guy in the whole place that you needed to protect, that you needed to be sure he didn't hurt himself or kill himself, it's the one man that's getting all the media attention. And you've heard all the the details about this, and and stuff comes out every day, right? The video cameras were disabled, the ones that were supposed to be watching him constantly in his cell, or they were pointed away from the cell or moved or something. Uh, The roommate that he had, that he was supposed to have, uh, was moved hours before he was found dead. The suicide watch was taken off, even though there was no reason to do that. Uh, and most recent uh, story that I read uh, a few hours ago was that the guard logs, where they say, yeah, we checked on him at 1 a.m., we checked on him at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m., uh, those uh, logs were falsified. So they wrote down the logs, they actually checked on him, he was okay. It turns out that he didn't. And uh, and so, you know, we have all sorts of incompetence and corruption going on here. Uh, and, of course, the conspiracy and hitman theories abound, right? If you are a conservative, you're convinced the Clintons did it, uh, you know, and that this all fits in with all the other folks who mysteriously died being associated with the Clintons, Vince Foster, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, if you are liberal, you're convinced Trump did it, that, uh, that, that Jeffrey Epstein, when he was going to go to trial or cut a plea deal or something like that, was going to name names and that, of course, Trump was going to be one of those names. And so if you're liberal or you're Democrat, then you're convinced that actually Trump or somebody working on his behalf did it. But at least one thing we can all agree on, hopefully, is that there is definitely incompetence as a part of this suicide, and there is corruption at some level, right? I mean, at the very least, the, you know, the guards lied about, you know, on paper, on a record, uh, you know, falsified documents saying that they did their job when they really didn't, and apparently they were asleep. 
um, you know, if you uh, subscribe to a higher level of corruption, maybe he was killed or maybe he's not even dead, right? I don't know if you heard that one, that the body taken out of the jail, maybe it wasn't Epstein's body, maybe it was a lookalike, maybe Epstein's been secreted away, maybe he's back on his uh, private island hiding in a bunker somewhere, right? If you really want to take the, the conspiracy theories uh, all the way out to their edge. But anyhow, at least as a floor, at least as a floor, I think we can agree. There's definitely incompetence, and there is definitely corruption at some level, at least at a at a low level compared to the to the sensational um, uh, theories about uh, you know a Clinton hit man or a Trump hit man or or something else. And so, when you think about healthcare, right? What's this got to do with healthcare? Well, where have we seen this somewhere before? Where have we seen incompetence? and corruption that led to the harm of people that you were supposed to protect? And the answer is pretty clear. It's, of course, the VA hospital system. Uh, where else have we seen falsifications of records, right? You know, you write down in a book or on a record-keeping system somewhere that you did something that you actually did not do. And that exists in the VA scandals as well, right? If you think those have gone away uh, under the Trump administration, maybe some of them have gotten a little bit better. But uh, they they haven't gone away. There's still issues with whistleblowers getting abused, and there's still issues with <coughs> excuse me, um, uh, folks falsifying records. Like uh, you know, this quality measure the VA has. I think that you need to get an appointment within two weeks. I think is the number. I'm not sure. Uh, two weeks of of calling to request the appointment. So if there are no appointments available, they just falsify the records. And if you can't have an appointment until the 31st, and it's the first of the month, they'll just say you got your appointment the 31st, and you called on the 21st. Uh, and instead of the first. So, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, falsifying of records, very similar to what uh, went on in um, this, uh, in the prison. And like the prisoners, veterans are prisoners of their own health care, right? They have, you know, in most instances, no other place to go. And although, again, there's been some steps made under the Trump administration to try to give vets other options, those are not getting executed in the trenches. I don't know if you remember uh, a few months ago, Dr. Hal and I had uh, one of his residents on who has a much, obviously, much more recent experience at the VA uh, than either Dr. Hal or myself. But uh, the long and short of that interview with this young lady is that nothing has changed. In the VA, and, and you know these folks kill themselves trying to get these veterans care, and have to operate in a system that offers them, you know, no support whatsoever. In many instances, they have to wait on the phone hours, six hours sometimes. On, uh, I remember her saying to get uh, veterans with cancer uh, care outside the system if they can't get it inside the system. And you know, in the trenches, these things die uh, a slow death from uh, from benign neglect, and. Like Jeffrey Epstein, these veterans commit suicide, right? The number is 22 veterans per day commit suicide. Now, I'm not suggesting all of them are related to VA care, but a large proportion of them are. And there's been, uh, you know, many veterans that have uh, killed themselves on VA campuses, right? We, in this past April, we had two in the state of Georgia who killed themselves on a VA campus and one, I think, August 6th, right? A few days ago. Uh, what, eight days ago, nine days ago, um, in, in North Carolina who killed himself on, on the campus. And, you know, oftentimes they'll leave notes to the effect that they're killing themselves as sort of the last protest against the lack of care, uh, the lack of empathy, uh, you know, in, in a system that, that doesn't really work. And, and uh, even, uh, you know, Trump last March signed an executive order to create a task force to look into veteran suicide. So I see many 
parallels between what's going on in the prison and, and, and how they fail to do their job. You know, how at the VA uh, we have a corrupt system that fails to do its job. And in both cases, you have prisoners of a system uh, who uh, have a suicide rate that is far beyond the general population, uh, uh, even though, you know, they're in a system that should be protecting them. Okay, so let's circle back now that we've sort of developed this example about the prisons and the VA, and let's circle back around to, to Bernie Sanders because he has upped the ante. Uh, a, an article in Politico uh, a couple of days ago uh, dis- described uh, you know, some insider information from Bernie's campaign that they've done a reboot. Uh, they've gone back and looked at, number one, his lack of preparation for the first debate, and again, by their own description, uh, a lack of preparation for the first debate, a lack of a message, and then the really neat moment that they had with this, uh, you know, drop the mic moment about, I wrote the damn bill, uh, and um, and said, okay, we're going to reboot the campaign, it's going to be all about Medicare for all. You know, strategically, they're saying we got one strong card. Everything else that we're talking about is just a, a rerun of 2016. It's not going to capture anyone's imagination. It's not going to separate us from the other Democratic candidates. So we're going to go all in for Medicare for all. So with that in mind, I'm going to replay the clip for you uh, because I want to make a couple of points about this that, that, that I think get lost and, um, yeah, so I want you to listen very carefully to it again, and uh, and then we're going to kind of pick it apart a little. Here we go. Can you guarantee those union members that the benefits under Medicare for All will be as good as the benefits that their representatives, their union reps, fought hard to negotiate? Well, two things. They will be better because Medicare for All is comprehensive. It covers all health care needs for senior citizens. It will finally include dental care hearing aids, and eyeglasses. But you don't know Second that. of all. You don't know that, Second Bernie. of all. We'll come to you in a second, I do know, and I wrote the damn bill. <laughs> okay, so, so let's pick this apart very carefully because Bernie was very, very clever here. You know, Bernie's not dumb. Uh, and he knows how to play a shell game when he's in a debate situation. You know, he's finely tuned his, you know, is health care a right uh, argument uh, and knows how to corner people with that. Uh, so, so he's a very smart guy. So let's look at what he did there. Uh, Tim Ryan, who was the presidential candidate who challenged Bernie on Medicare for all. Tim's point was, you don't know how Medicare for All compares with the union health plans that have been negotiated by these labor unions over decades. They're among the sweetest health care plans out there. And this debate took place in you know the cradle of union country. So it was a very relevant question. And so what Tim was saying was you don't understand how Medicare for All compares to these union-based sweetheart deal health plans. It's a valid point. It's a valid point. But Bernie turned it around and made it sound like Tim was accusing him of not knowing what was in Medicare for All. Tim was accusing him of not knowing how Medicare for All compared to another plan. to, To know how two things compare, you have to know your own plan and you have to know the union plan. It's unlikely that Bernie has every detail of every union plan in the country stored in his head for immediate access to sort of make that comparison. So Tim was right. Bernie doesn't know 
But Bernie turned it around and said, well, I know it's in my own plan. I wrote the damn bill. So if you can't win the argument that you're presented with, create another argument and win that one. And he did that all in a couple of sentences. It was very clever. Uh, unfortunately, it, it, it leaves them a, a mistaken impression, uh, and it created a you know drop the microphone moment. And now, of course, you know the Sanders campaign is uh, you know selling bumper stickers with that, and you know God knows what else. You know when I went on uh, the internet to try to find that clip to record, I mean you know the Sanders campaign has you know jazzed that video up and is you know uh, doing what their what their job is, which is to you know sort of uh, you know capitalize on on that moment. So when Tim Ryan said you don't know that, the that he was referring to was the comparison, not the content of Medicare for All itself. However, the point I want to make at the beginning of the next segment is that this, this you know, I wrote the damn bill comment um, reveals some things about Bernie and about Medicare for All that are very, very scary, and we will get to those in segment two. Uh, you're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Karuchak, your host today. Thanks very much for being with us in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Uh, in the first segment, we were getting pretty deep into uh, a couple of different issues. We started with uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein's um, untimely uh, death uh, by apparent suicide in a high-security prison, and how could that possibly happen, relating that to you know when the government does anything, they're going to screw it up uh, with a combination of uh, incompetence and corruption. Uh, we then started another thread talking about Bernie Sanders and Medicare for All, and I think you can see where the relationship's going. And, and we've played the clip twice already. I'm not going to fill the whole show up by playing the same clip over and over again, but we replayed Bernie Sanders' drop-the-microphone moment from the second debate when he was challenging Tim Ryan, and he said, I wrote the damn bill, and we got a bunch of applause. And uh, And we've been sort of analyzing the guts of that. And the first thing that we said was uh, that um, – what was the first thing? That we, oh, I know what it was. God, I'm losing my mind here. Uh, that that, that the, I wrote the damn bill. That moment was actually a very clever shell game uh, that, that Bernie Sanders was playing and that he was – he substituted uh, – Tim Ryan accused him of not understanding the relationship between Medicare for All and some of these really sweet deal union-based – labor union-based health plans. 
that's a valid point, and I don't think Bernie Sanders knows that. But but Bernie Sanders turned it around and said, "You're wrong because I know what's in my bill. I wrote the damn bill." And of course, you get the applause, and now we have the T-shirts on the bumper stickers, and God knows what else from the Bernie Sanders campaign that has rebooted. Apparently, his campaign based only on he's going to be a one-issue candidate from now on. It's going to be Medicare for all because it's really the only, if you'll pardon the pun, Trump card that he's got to play. So let's get on to a couple of other points about this. I wrote the damn bill comment because I think it's very, very revealing of the arrogance of Bernie Sanders. And and don't get me wrong. I like Bernie Sanders as a politician because at least he's honest. He says he's socialist. He says what he means. He means what he says. Uh, he makes no effort to, uh, you know, be somebody he's not. He's not like Hillary Clinton and a lot of the Democrat uh, uh, politicians that you know go and you know imitate the accent of their audience or try to pretend they're somebody they're not or try to you know change colors to match their surroundings. Uh, they, you know, Bernie Sanders is who he is, and it doesn't matter who he's talking to or where he's going. And and for that, I I do respect him at least a little bit. But I think we also have to, you know, call balls and strikes uh, how we see him. And I think we have a big problem here with with his ignorance uh, about unforeseen consequences and his arrogance regarding unforeseen consequences. Uh, what is telling about that dialogue between Ryan and Bernie was that uh, not only is Bernie not aware of what the union benefits are and what the union health care plans look like, he doesn't care. Um, he has no recognition of the potential for unforeseen consequences. He is enamored with his own intellect. He is enamored with his plan of Medicare for all. He describes it in broad, overly simplistic strokes of the brush. It's comprehensive. It covers all health care needs, right? He used those two descriptors. Comprehensive covers all health care needs. As if it's very simple to take 330 million Americans and just lump them under one plan and expect by saying something really simple-minded like, yeah, it covers everything. Well, what is everything? Well, I don't know, but whatever it is, we're going to cover it uh, with no thought about what it's going to cost, who's going to pay for it, how you finance it, and you know, raising taxes on the 1% is not going to do it, right? If you do the math, you could confiscate all of the wealth and assets of the 1% and still not be able to pay for Medicare for all. So it's just a, it, it, the arrogance of that bothers me. And uh, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here in a, li- a little bit and introduce something very new. The, this whole idea of, of Bernie Sanders and Medicare for all, you know, I mean, Bernie even kind of looks like a mad scientist sometimes. You know, his hair's all disheveled. You know, he, he wears very plain clothes that don't fit very well. And those aren't – that doesn't make him a bad politician. He could be fully capable of being president with respect to the fit of his clothes. It doesn't matter. Uh, except it does create kind of an image, and and I got to thinking you have you have a political mad scientist with a monster, Medicare for all, and it reminds me of the Frankenstein story. Now I know that Halloween is still a couple of months away, and that may sound crazy, but bear with me. I've run this idea past about a half a dozen people that I respect, and they all say it's a great idea. So before you write me off as crazy as Frankenstein. Hear me out here and let me walk you through this. Now, I'm not talking about Young Frankenstein, the movie, although that's one of my favorite movies of all time, or any of the you know Hollywood renditions of Frankenstein with the flat-top monster and the bolts in his neck and his hands out going, uh, that kind of thing. I'm talking about the original novel written by one Mary Shelley, 
um, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. And, you know, you have to go back, and I went back and, and read as much of the book, reread as much of the book as I could get my hands on to be sure I sort of had my literary facts right here before I sort of went off on this tangent. But hear me out. The story begins with a young teenage aged Frankenstein who goes off to university um, having studied some science but mostly alchemists, right, alchemy, right, this alternate science that comes from many, many moons ago before a scientific enlightenment. That's who thought they could turn lead into gold and all this kind of stuff. And he reads all of this in his high school years basically, goes off to university challenges his professors with his knowledge, and by and large, not totally, but by and large is unimpressed with some of his faculty, not all, and fancies himself to be smarter than they are, or at least more gifted than they are. And so, uh, you know, he really redoubles his interest in alchemy over traditional science, which was now gaining momentum by the time of, 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 of Frankenstein's character, um, and becomes obsessed with the reanimation of dead tissue, right? Creating the monster, sewing all the parts together and striking it with lightning and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he becomes very enamored with himself. He becomes very arrogant, um, out of proportion to even his talent, and he was talented, a very talented character, um, but really you know, regards himself as capable of not only reanimating dead tissue but ra- raising ghosts from the dead and devils from the dead and all this kind of stuff. Fancies that any creature he creates will sort of worship him as a god, as their creator. The way God created man, he's going to create uh, other living things and become sort of a god in his own right. So tremendous levels of arrogance and an obsession with his project. So does this sound familiar? Does this parallel what Bernie Sanders is doing with Medicare for All? Uh, you know, an, an arrogance that says, I don't really care what the rest of the system looks like. I don't really care about history. I don't really care about who this is going to help, who this is going to hurt, or any of the unforeseen consequences. Right? We are just going to wipe the slate clean on healthcare in America and replace it with a fully government-run program. And it's going to work great because I'm Bernie Sanders and I say it's going to work great. It's going to work great because we're we're just not going to think it through. We're just going to step off the cliff and do it. And like the teenage Dr. Frankenstein, he has no, uh, no recognition of unintended consequences or that anything can go wrong. Well, then what happens? Well, it's interesting to actually read these chapters from the original Mary Shelley novel um, because the moment the creature is created, and I mean before the creature has a chance, the, the, the monster, that's really called the monster, has a chance to do anything, hurt anyone, do anything, um, Frankenstein is horrified by his monster. The minute he opens an eye, opens his eyes, he takes a deep breath, and he moves his limbs, twitches something on the table there. And the minute that happens, he's disgusted, he's horrified, he's in that, you know, has that, you know, what have I done kind of moment. Now, there's something odd there because the creature, the, the, the monster hadn't done anything yet. I mean, that's like being horrified by your child the minute it's born just because, you know, it takes a breath and moves a limb. You know, it doesn't make any sense unless there's something deeper going on here. And sure enough, 
you know, bad things happen once this monster is created, right? This, the monster goes out and murders Victor Frankenstein's brother, leads to the death of two other people, one other victim that Frankenstein murders and another person who's mistakenly convicted for one of the uh, uh, Frankenstein murders. And uh, and and so and so it goes. Uh, the mon- the monster eventually confronts Victor Frankenstein, um, and oddly enough, speaks very eloquently. Apparently, this monster is very educated. He knows French. He's sort of picked up all this in his his uh, travels. Um, but then he makes um, Victor Frankenstein an ultimatum and says, "Make me a mate, or I will destroy you." And Frankenstein initially agrees, but then on the second time around, finally it occurs to this allegedly brilliant person that he better think about unforeseen consequences if he's going to build another one. And says, you know, this one might be even more violent than the first, or the two of them might breed a whole race of monsters because you've created a male, you've created a female, right? I mean, the creation story from the Bible. This is the book of Genesis all over again, except it's the scary way instead of the good way, right? He creates the first monster, which is Adam. Adam asks for a mate, right? You know, the monster asks for a mate. But then um, Frankenstein has second thoughts, and, and just about the time he's got all the parts put together, um, the original Frankenstein monster comes in. Victor decides this isn't such a good idea and destroys the the, the bride of Frankenstein. Right, that's where this all those movies came from, um, and destroys the second monster right in front of the first. And the monster swears to get revenge on Frankenstein. Says, "I'll be with you on your wedding night." Sure enough, you know, months later, he's married. He, the Fran- monster's there. He kills his wife, and in the end, the monster never actually dies without dragging out the plot too far. Um, and so the, the, the parallels are there. They're unmistakable. So what we're faced with now is the mad scientist Bernie Sanders has his monster on the table. All the parts are sewn together. If he's elected president, lightning strikes the monster and he comes to life. And I think the outcome will be just as the novel Frankenstein predicts, that uh, that we think it's great, or some people think it's great, up until the moment it's created, and then the longer time passes after that moment of creation, the worse things get. And I think that's where we're going. If you look at uh, you know the the prison issue and sort of bring those together, you know here's the fundamental problem with Medicare for all. The folks who think the VA is great and the folks that think Medicare for all is great fail to recognize a basic point of human nature. We humans, wonderful as we are, we need accountability. We need incentives in order to make things work. The mistake of Medicare for all is the same mistake as the VA, the National Health Service, and the Canadian system, which is the belief that all you need to do is bring patients together, doctors and nurses together, put them in a building with a pile of resources, and the result just happens. And that's not it. That's like the difference between a living creature and a pile of chemicals that represent the same composition of is, is a human. It doesn't work. You know, life is not just a, a pile of chemicals that you mix together in a pot and heat it up. There's something more. That's the difference between free market medicine and Medicare for all. Medicare for all is a monster. You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host this week. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much for continuing to uh, to hang out with us this hour. Um, we were reading some articles. Uh, this is sort of like a journal club here, I suppose. And we were, we were we're reading this article that talked about the six things that are wrong with hospital medicine. They're really six steps that take the hospitalist specialty from potential greatness down to merely a vehicle for financial survival. And that's the opinion of the, the author of the article who is himself a hospitalist. So the six steps, we started to talk about them in the prior segment. We'll review them again briefly. Step one, um, you hire a bunch of young, hungry docs that have student loans to pay off and are ready to work really, really super hard. And then you put them on a relatively fixed salary, and then you give them as many patients to take care of as they can humanly handle. That's step one. Step two, the, the doctors themselves respond by offloading as much of the work as possible to uh, to specialists. So, you know, if there's a pneumonia, you get a pulmonologist or an infectious disease. If there's renal failure, you get the nephrologist, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, if there's sinusitis, they call me, the ENT. Uh, so that's step two is to is to you know add on to the the uh, specialist consultants. Step three is to start uh, massaging your documentation to make papers papers patients look as uh, as sick as possible on paper, which leads to where we are now, which is step four, uh, which is the fourth pillar, which is now uh, where uh, you start gaming with things like observation status versus inpatient status, and uh, you know if you can use improved documentation to uh, make patients, again, look as sick as possible on paper so that you're Diagnoses change, and so your your um, your case mix index changes, and so that is step four. Step five is now where utilization review nurses enter the picture and uh, and start looking to get fixed DRG patients out of the hospital as soon as possible. Uh, again, because you know the fixed DRG, as I understand it, and my understanding is very rudimentary, means you get a fixed payment, which means once you get the money, you want to discharge the patient as soon as possible to reduce the overhead. Uh, and then finally, the last step comes completely from without, which is the quality measures that CMS imposes on everyone. And now you've got to do everything that you can to sort of live within these quality measures, even if it, you know, creates frank distortions in the documentation in terms of how well or how sick a patient really is. So six steps. And again, why do these steps exist? They exist because hospitals live off of third-party payer payments, and you know, and so now. You know, hospitalists above all. I mean, you know, it, this article made me feel for these folks. It's not their fault. It's not the hospital's fault. It is the system within which we all must exist. And, you know, we all have to do things similar to this in one way or another. It was just a very interesting article published in Kevin MD. Um, you know, what was this, uh, last September actually just ran across it. Um, that is, uh, that is so interesting about that. <laughs> So there's Journal Club article number one. And again, the theme of all of this, these articles I found is how third-party payer distorts every single part of medicine. You know, we talk about, you know, certain things. 
you know, primary care and information technology and, you know, we, we talk about all these things. Um, you know, there's a lot of other nooks and crannies in the system that, that we don't have time to give a lot of attention to, hospitalists being one of them. And so we'll talk about a few of these. So here's an article on the opioid ec- epidemic. Um, and what you might not know about the op- opioid ec- epidemic is that uh, in 2016 – uh, the CDC, in response to the opioid epidemic, uh, came out with some very uh, draconian guidelines, at least according to this author, about you know when you can prescribe opioids, how long you can prescribe opioids, who can prescribe them. I hate that word opioids; they're narcotics for crying out loud. Uh, uh, but uh, you know what were the rules for for um, prescribing narcotics? And uh, you know we don't. I, I'm not exposed to this very much. I give very very short courses of narcotics after surgery, um, and I do give less now than I used to. I used to give 30 hydrocodone Tylenol pills. Now I give 20, and if it's a smaller surgery, even 15 or even as little as 12. Um, and I think that's worked out pretty well. I think there's probably a lot fewer of my patients with you know half-consumed uh, bottles of uh, you know, Tylenol and hydrocodone sitting in their cabin, which is a good thing. Uh, but I didn't do that in response to any forced guideline. I just did it because I thought it was the right thing to do. But apparently docs and other specialties who you know prescribe narcotics under different conditions uh you know were really sort of pushed into doing that and in um uh you know in 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 march of uh, of uh, this year the, the the cdc received a letter from 300 medical experts uh including former drug czars from the prior administration saying that the 2016 guidelines had become a tool for insurers to deny opioid coverage right here comes the third party distortion as if these guidelines weren't enough now you've got insurers denying opioid coverage and for doctors to undertreat or even drop patients that they have on narcotics and as a result you know there were a lot of patients really hurting and they were going into narcotic withdrawal so now what happens well now doctors get a warning right again it's always the doctor's fault um, that you can't taper opioids opioids see look at me narcotics too soon and so now you got another set of guidelines that countermand the original set of guidelines. And you know, I, in reading the article, I, you know, some people seem to like this. I, you know, it, to me, it's confusing. It's kind of like, okay, you know, what are what are my legal responsibilities? Uh, you know, as a narcotic prescriber, and you know, once again. Third-party interference from government and insurers, you know, it, it, at the very least what it does is it deprives the physician of autonomy. It deprives the physician of the ability to use clinical judgment to know when opioids – opioids, listen to me – narcotics are appropriate and when narcotics aren't appropriate, how much, how often, when, for how long. You know, all that is now, uh, you know, taken away from us and our ability to make those judgments is bad. And remember, it was regulations that started this whole thing in the first place, right? Doctors just didn't start deciding arbitrarily years ago to start over-prescribing narcotics. This all came down because of, uh, you know, JCAH that accredits hospitals, the pain scale, and, you know, the, the first lecture that we got, you know, years ago that we weren't giving enough uh, medications to patients for pain. So, you know, this is what happens with third-party interference. First, they pushed us to give too much narcotic. Then they threatened us legally to reduce the amount of narcotics. And now the pendulum's back again saying, oh, no, don't taper too soon or you're going to hurt somebody. This is what happens with these rapidly flipping guidelines back and forth, back and forth. Uh, and, and, you know, in the end, we're, we're deprived of our ability to make judgments. If they would just have left us alone, 
None of this would have happened. Not that uh, narcotic addiction is not a significant problem. It is. It always has been. Uh, now the problem is far worse because of third-party interference with the practice of medicine. That's that. Now let's look at another sort of section of the healthcare system that we haven't really talked about very much at all, which has to do with medical research. Medical research that is largely carried out at our hallowed, revered academic institutions. And this article actually starts off picking on my medical school, alma, alma mater, Duke University. So it's, you know, with some sadness that I report this, except to say that it's happening in other places besides Duke. And the, and the article just appropriately says that, you know, Duke is just the latest uh, in, a, in a long string of this. But this is the Duke settling a, a doctor data lawsuit for $112.5 million, so a really, really high price tag. Um, but that there was, uh, you know, a, a one particular physician researcher that was fudging data and, uh, you know, fudging data a lot. Uh, it, it seems they had a whistleblower um, and, uh, and they're going to receive a significant amount of the $112 uh, million. Um, but, you know, the, the data here are a little scary uh, that, uh, you know, the study was on the effects um, of pollutants, air pollution on the lungs in a, in a mouse model, and that, um, you know, Duke had won some 50 NIH grants from, you know, well, not just the NIH, Environmental Protection Agency, other government agencies, and apparently the data that were in these things were um, uh, fraudulent data. And, you know, it, and Duke's not the only one that's got this, uh, you know, Fraudulent data problem. The, uh, the the article you know has says there's other ones. In 2017, Brigham and Women's had to pay the government 10 million dollars um, because three stem cell scientists um, manipulated and falsified information. Columbia University in New York City had one for 9.5 million. So uh, you know it's not just one institution; it's several institutions. And you know this article mentions three, counting Duke. Um, but again, it's a third-party payer problem. It's not exactly the same because it's not insurance, but you have a situation where researchers are are dependent on a, a benefactor for the money, and they end up sort of working in one project and one project only. <clears throat> and if the well runs dry on the validity of that project, then they're in a terrible ethical bind. Because if they just come out and say, you know what, I've been working on this project five years, ten years, and you know what, it's just not panning out. You know, there's there's nothing here to find. It's a dead end. Uh, you know, their career's over. Because if they lose their NIH grant, they lose their job, as I understand it. And so, you know, what's a what's a PhD researcher to do? You know, you have to start over again in somebody else's lab with no grant and you know minimal salary. I mean, it's you know we've set up a system here, you know, where you know I'm not saying the players aren't at fault, but I'm I, I'm saying I, I recognize their ethical dilemma of that you know you do one project, you rely on grants, you have no other income stream, and <clears throat> if that runs dry, <clears throat> excuse me. Then you know you're you're in a it's it's a terrible a terrible ethical dilemma. These folks are are their entire career is based on one scientific hypothesis, one project, and uh, you know again you know we've got a problem where government involvement has distorted things so badly that there's a problem. Okay, so we've got uh, a couple of minutes left. Let's talk about uh, wellness programs. 
All right, here's another sort of nook and cranny that we've never really gone into, but uh, wellness programs. We're talking about workplace wellness programs, right, where your employer offers you financial incentives to exercise more, to eat better, to do all these things. And on the surface, it sounds like a good idea. And In fact, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, had very, very generous incentives. You could apparently put uh, you know, incentives in place worth up to 30% of the cost of your health insurance, uh, you know, which ended up being, you know, hundreds or even thousands of dollars of, of benefits, um, from, uh, you know, doing, you know, participating in one of these wellness programs. So, um, this is published in Kaiser Health News, uh, April 16th of last month, and they, Finally looked at, uh, they, they had a large study cohort. They used BJ's Wholesale Club, and they, I guess they've got 160 stores. So they put 20 store outlets on a wellness program, and 140 stores they left as they were without a wellness program. And after 18 months, it turned out, yeah, the, you know, the workers participating in the wellness programs did self-report healthier behavior, but those efforts did not result in any difference in health measures. You know, blood sugar was no better. Um, you know, uh, the money spent on health care didn't change. Job performance didn't change. Longevity in the position didn't change. And so, you know, we've got another situation where the data show that something that seems like a good idea does not appear to be based on this. Now, there's some shortcomings in the study, and we're running out of time, so uh, we're done. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.